This message this morning is one that uh, I have wrestled with all week long, and actually prior to that, uh, because it's a passage that uh, speaks to us on several levels. I try to research the, the references, the reference works that are available, and to uh, identify what others have seen in this passage, and other passages related to it, it's, it's been quite a, quite a challenge and a journey. And so, the title of today's message is, And Such Were Some of You. Our passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 12. And for those who are keeping track of our key word today is the word unrighteous. And so, let us begin by reading the passage and then praying for God's blessing upon our efforts to understand what Paul is writing, what God is speaking through the Apostle Paul to us in this passage. So would you like to stand with me as we read this passage aloud? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 through 12. Now therefore... It is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. There. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to open our eyes to see the treasure that is provided for us in this passage. Help us, Lord, not to overemphasize any one part of this passage to the detriment of other parts of this passage. Help us to have in our minds what the Apostle Paul had in his mind when he wrote these things. And may we come away from this morning equipped by your word and by your spirit to do all the wonderful things that you've called us to do and to be all the things you've called us to be for your glory alone. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was difficult to fit it all into one title, and so I decided to just make this the title of this slide. 
The Christians in Corinth were a mess. Paul tells us in verses 7 through 8 that they are already an utter failure. They're taking one another to court. Uh, And rather than accepting the wrong that's being done against them and forgiving others when they have been cheated, instead they turn against one another and do wrong toward one another and cheat one another and they're doing these things against their very own brethren in the Lord. And so Paul asks this question, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now this glaring lack of love among the Christians in Corinth by suing one another in court before unbelievers was a display of unrighteousness that was not unlike the unrighteousness of unbelievers. That's Paul's point. And so Paul reminds the Corinthian believers that this same kind of unrighteousness is what is bringing the wrath of God upon unbelievers and keeping them from inheriting the kingdom of God. So we are confronted with the question, does this display of unrighteousness mean that the Corinthian Christians are not actually saved? And I think the answer has to be not necessarily. I think it is possible that some of these so-called believers were not actually believers, and so they are behaving like unbelievers because they are unbelievers. But it's also possible that they are in fact believers, but as babes in Christ, as immature believers, they are struggling with the sins of the flesh that can sometimes appear to be the kind of behavior you would expect from someone who's not yet been saved. And so we come to Romans chapter 7 and verse 15, and there were many of the commentators who turned to this passage in order to address the issue of what was happening in the church of Corinth and this glaring display of unrighteousness. Now this is the Apostle Paul writing in chapter 7 of verse 15 and on, and it is impossible to see this passage as having been a description of Paul's life before he came to Christ. Because if he had not yet come to Christ, you would not be able to say that he is struggling with sin. He would simply be sinning. So let's read what it says. what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. 
For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That is some of the most complicated grammar in all of the Bible. So as Christians, we are saved through grace, by grace, through faith, and not by our ability to suddenly start keeping God's law perfectly. And so we have to accept the fact that we all lose battles against our flesh. As John asked, you know, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. But we have an advocate with the Father, Christ. And so Paul continues in chapter 7 in verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now sometimes our systematic theologies get us wrapped around the axle, so to speak. And we think, well, how can Paul be saying, I will serve God, the law of God, with my mind, but with my flesh I will serve the law of sin? Well, he's describing the battle that's going on between your flesh and the various members of your flesh that have appetites and desires and yearnings. And those appetites and yearnings are going to be tugging at you to go and do things that are wrong. But the Spirit of God within you is going to be pulling you in the other direction to do those things that are right. And your soul stands in between these two forces. And in those moments, you have a choice to make. Now, this is not a, a choice as to whether or not to trust God and be saved. That is, that is a gift from God. That is not something that, that you have anything to offer except the sin that gets forgiven. But having been saved, having come to Christ, when you are facing the opportunity to do something that's wrong, you have a choice. Now, by God's grace, through faith, you can yield to the Spirit and walk according to the Spirit and not commit that sin. Or you can yield to your flesh and fail to avail yourself of the power and the strength you have by the Holy Spirit and indulge yourself in that moment in sin. And then your conscience and Satan himself begin to beat the tar out of you with what is called condemnation. The difference between conviction and condemnation is with conviction there's something you can do about it. You can repent. You can turn. You can fight against that sin. 
But with condemnation, you are trapped and you are hopeless, and Satan will do his very best to bring you to such despair that you even would become suicidal. And so Paul is saying here, this battle is real. As a Christian, it's real. If you were not a Christian, you would not be delighting in the law of God in your inner man. But as a Christian, you can, in your heart, say, I want to do what's right. I want to please my Heavenly Father. I don't want to give in to this temptation. And yet, like the drug addict, or the alcoholic, or any other besetting sin that may be in your life, you can, and sometimes will, indulge yourself in what is displeasing to God, what is unrighteous. And so Paul continues in Romans chapter one, or chapter eight and verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now this is not conditional, that there's no condemnation as long as you walk in the spirit, but if you don't walk in the spirit, then you're condemned. No, he's saying there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, as Paul tells us later on in chapter eight, you have the spirit of God and you are alive in Christ and you will do battle against sin. So he writes, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I'm free from that law of sin and death. So we are free from condemnation as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness by walking according to the spirit. Now I want to turn for a moment and address this issue since Paul is saying that those who indulge themselves in this unrighteousness and this long list of different kinds of unrighteousness that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to go back and take a look at what Jesus has to say about the kingdom of God and what his function is in our lives, in this life, as well as in the life to come. So how does the kingdom of God work? In Matthew chapter six and verse 24, Jesus sets up this dichotomy, this, this opposition. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. The word despise in, the, in old English means neglect. It's not necessarily animosity, it's just, just don't even pay any attention to it. That's why we read that Jesus despised the shame of being on the cross. He just ignored it. He's not up there hating it, he's ignoring it. Because he knows that he's accomplishing the will of his Father. And so it says that the one he will despise the other. So there's this conflict between these two. Two masters, and, G and then Jesus names them. You cannot serve God and mammon. What is mammon? 
Mammon is stuff. It's money. It's possessions. It's houses. It's lands. It's all the benefits that this life can offer to you when things are going well for you. And if those things are where your heart lies, then you are an enemy of God. Your mind is on earthly things. Your God is your belly. That's what Paul says in Philippians. So we have this dichotomy. And so Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? A cubit would be quite a bit of increase in stature. I mean, that, we're talking about maybe three feet taller, okay? No, maybe not three feet. Is that a cubit? All right, from the elbow to the tips of the fingers. That would be a growth spurt, right? So which of you says, you can't, uh, by worrying, add one cubit to your stature. And so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? Now, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary by Louis A. Barbarii, I believe, Jr., he writes this about this passage. In Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34, Jesus was saying God has built into his creation the means by which all things are cared for. The birds are fed because they diligently work to maintain their lives. They do not store up great amounts of food, but continually work. The lilies grow daily through a natural process. Therefore, an individual need not be anxious about his existence, for by worrying he can never add any amount of time, not even a single hour, to his life. Rather than being like the pagans, the Gentiles, who are concerned about physical needs, the Lord's disciples should be concerned about the things of God, his kingdom, and his righteousness. Then all these needs will be supplied in God's timing. This is the life of daily faith. It does no good to worry. Do not worry occurs three times in this passage. Or be concerned about tomorrow, for there are sufficient matters to attend to each day. As a disciple cares each day for the things of God, has trusted to him, God, his heavenly Father, cares for his daily needs. Now, Mr. Bar Barbieri, am I pronouncing that correctly? Hmm? Barbieri. He's confirming something that I 
have been teaching for many years, and that is that the kingdom of God in this life is intended to be a means of God's provision in our lives. And that when we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all the things that the Gentiles, the pagans are seeking for and clamoring for, they will be added to us by our Heavenly Father as we need them, because he knows that we need them. And so we see God provides all we need through righteousness. Let's take a look. Matthew 6, 24. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. We don't want to spiritualize about this. We're talking about food and clothing and other necessities of life. So what's the solution? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, as the New King James Version puts it. Now in Luke chapter 12 and verse 31, we have a similar passage, but in the conclusion of Luke's presentation, we read this. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we have in this passage, these two passages, is the function of the kingdom of God in this present life. And it is intended to be a means of provision for us. The things that we need, the necessities of life, are to flow to us by the relationships that we have within the kingdom of God. But seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness in this life, or by seeking God's kingdom and righteousness in this life, the Christian enjoys God's natural provision. Now there is miraculous provision occasionally. Occasionally the Lord will say, go catch a fish. And then in the mouth of that fish are two coins and you go pay your taxes with those two coins. I'd call that miraculous, okay? God arranged for that fish to recognize two shiny objects and gobble them up, and now we've got a miraculous provision. But generally, normally, God provides through our natural responsibilities in life. We go to work. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life minding your own business, working with your own hands, the thing which is good, in order that you may earn the respect of outsiders and not be dependent on anybody. So Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, describing what it looks like to participate in these kingdom relationships that God has established. And they are relationships of righteousness. 
What is righteousness? Righteousness is right relatedness. First to God, and then to one another, and then also to things, our possessions. Right relationships in all of these ways allows God's provision to flow to us, but it doesn't stop there. It also flows through us to others. And that's why Jesus says, sell what you have and give to the poor and lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, we have this interesting statement from the Apostle Paul. He says, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness, which is another way of saying righteousness, is profitable for all things, having promise of this life, the life that now is, and that which is to come. So, we start off in life like some of these little, little babies we have in the room right now. And they're crawling around playing with basketballs, right? And they continue to grow up until they become a young person. And we've got some of these young people right here. See if you can see yourself in this chart as I go through it, okay? So we've got this young person and he's walking along, growing up in life. And he keeps moving as well until finally he's, he's a full grown man. And this man is walking through life and he finds himself a wife. Here we go, come on, there we go. And he's got some kids and there's another little baby down there and they're all moving on in life together. Now, sometimes life will leave you alone in, later, in your later years. Could be a husband, could be a wife. Children move away, they grow up and move away. You find yourself alone, life continues. You find yourself getting a little shorter, right? You start looking like one of those traffic signs and then <laughs> you end up with a real traffic sign right here. Uh, so what we have is, uh, this is the arc of life. Now throughout your lifetime, if you continue to stay in right relationship with those that God has placed you in relationship to, God's provision will flow in those relationships. It won't just flow to you, but it'll flow to you and through you to others. And throughout your life, you will be both receiving and giving, receiving and giving. And God intends for you to be generous in your giving. And he intends for others to be generous in their giving to you. And as we see in the first few chapters of Acts, the early church took this very seriously and very practically. And to the point where they didn't consider anything that they owned to be their own, but rather they were willing even to sell those properties that were not needed in order to have something to put at the feet of the apostles. Now we know this was not coercive. It was not required, but it was something that was out of the abundance of their heart because they wanted to lay up treasure in heaven. We know that this is true because when Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit about the sale of their possession, Peter asked them, while you had it, wasn't it yours to do with whatever you choose? And after you sold it, wasn't the money yours? You see, they were not living in a commune where you had to sign some document that says everything that I own belongs to the leaders of the, of the commune. 
No, this was radical generosity is what it was. Not, not communi- communism. It was radical generosity from a heart that trusted God. So, God intends for this kingdom to be a real practical experience for all of us. And it's not always going to be easy. In fact, it will be hard. Some of you moms know you stay up late at night. Maybe some of you dads know that as well. Because there's a time when it's not easy to take care of that child. When that child is a baby or just a kid, just a young boy or girl, they are more trouble than their work in economic terms. Okay? They're not producing any income for the household, right? But later in life, if you have done the job you're supposed to do and raised them to love the Lord and to love you and to love their, their other family members and siblings, there's a time in life in which you're the one being taken care of and you're more trouble than you're worth. And yet we keep you and love you and hold on to you and care for you because you are precious to God and precious to us. This is not something that you need to be ashamed of. There's a time to be a a source of provision for others, and there's a time for you to receive the provision from others that you need. And it's all good. This is why the unrighteous, whether there be unbelievers or disobedient believers, will miss out on the benefits and the provision of God's kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, we read, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there are two distinct ways by which one may fail to inherit the kingdom of God in this life and in the next. The first is by never trusting in Christ in the first place. You're not even a Christian. You're not saved. You're lost and you're dead in trespasses and sins. There'll be no provision for you in the kingdom of God because you're not in the kingdom of God. But the second possibility is by trusting in Christ for your salvation, but then perhaps as an immature new believer, like the Corinthians were, you fail to pursue God's righteousness in this life. And you find yourself involved in the kinds of behaviors that destroy relationships and cause God's kingdom provision to cease to flow in its natural course. When believers behave like unbelievers, they fail to enjoy the benefits and the rewards of God's kingdom. For instance, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we've already covered this in the past, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. And specifically in this context, context, the loss of reward. Says if any man's work stands through this fire, he'll receive a reward. But if not, he will suffer loss of that reward. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, though we cannot lose our salvation, if you are authentically a born-again believer in Christ, you have eternal security. You cannot be lost. God will deal with you as a loving father with his children. 
but you may suffer loss by indulging in sinful, fleshly behavior that leads to the breaking down of these sustaining relationships that God has established for us in his kingdom. What kinds of unrighteousness keep both unbelievers and carnal believers from inheriting the kingdom benefits in this life? Well, Paul lists them. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in most likelihood, the people that Paul's referring to here are unbelievers in the world. But he's having this conversation with these Corinthians because they're behaving like unbelievers in taking one another to court before the unbelievers. That's the whole reason for this, this passage to be written. And he wants to clarify to them, if you start acting like the unbelievers who are not saved, you are going to miss out on many of the benefits that God intended for you to enjoy. So what is a fornicator? A fornicator is a person who has sexual intercourse with someone to whom they are not married, period. It's not anything more complicated than that. It's outside of the marriage bond. An idolater is a worshiper of any image or any material object representing any deity other than the true and living God. And there can also be, I think, idols that are not material, such as fame and power. But these are things that you are serving and sacrificing for, and they are not the true and living God. Adulterers, voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than their lawful spouse. That is adultery, and that breaks kingdom relationships that were intended to supply and provide for us in this life. Homosexuals, a person who is sexually attracted to people of the same sex. Sodomites, those who engage in any sexual contact that is a defilement of God's purpose and design for sex. We could also say a perversion of God's design for sex. But wait, there's more. Thieves. A person who steals, especially secretly or without open force. One guilty of theft, burglary, or larceny. Covetous. This is inordinately or wrongly desirous of wealth or possessions that rightfully belong to another. Drunkards. A habitual drinker of alcohol who is frequently intoxicated to the point of being socially and economically malfunctional. Your, your alcoholism or your drug abuse, you could include that here. Uh, is interfering with your ability to fulfill your responsibilities. Revilers. Someone who speaks abusively or contemptuously to or of another person or thing in a vile, worthless, or filthy way. Another word for this is a comedian. 
the modern-day comedian. Extortioners, those who commit the crime of obtaining money or any other thing of value from others by threatening them harm, as in blackmail, or by the abuse of one's office of authority to demand bribes. This is breaking relationships. And this is a civic relationship, by the way, when authorities are doing this type of thing. You see, the kingdom of God is not just everybody who's in the, in the church. It's the institutions that God has established for our good and for our flourishing. So even though you may not have a, a godly, saved, Christian uh, elected leader, uh, that leader is still the powers that be and is be, to be given respect that's due them because they are God's ministers to administer justice. Uh, they do not bear the sword in vain. And so we have this, uh, this understanding that the institutions that are of God are part of the kingdom of God, even though those who are in leadership of those institutions may not yet be believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we honor the office, even though we cannot honor the individual who holds that office in the way we would like to. So all of these sins destroy right relationships in this life. And if we can understand unrighteousness in that way, then we can see why it's not just a matter of me being justified by Christ in his sacrifice. That is my gift from God. I cannot do anything to earn that. I cannot pay God back for that. My salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as it's revealed in the scriptures alone. But having been saved, I now have opportunity to enter into and participate in these right relationships that God will use to provide for my needs throughout my lifetime. Now there are disruptions to this. There's war, there's famine, there's plague. There are times in which we go through difficult times, but these righteous relationships will even assist you through those times as well. We serve a good and faithful God. God hates sin because he loves us. And these sins hurt us. You know, the word evil is actually the word harmful. So if something is good, it's beneficial. If something is evil, it is harmful. Now God is the one that defines good and evil, and our sins are always against God, but they affect us, they affect one another. And therefore, when David sins with Bathsheba, he can say, against thee and thee only have I sinned, even though Bathsheba was affected, her husband was affected, he was killed in battle. All these things happened to people, but the sin itself was against God and God alone. And so we read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now this is not a future tense. This is present tense and ongoing. It is the kind of a grammatical tense that means right now 
and forever into the future, God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Their, their desire to sin allows them to play mind games with themselves, that what they're doing is somehow okay when it's not. And because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. So nobody out there is in reality an atheist. They know in their hearts that God is there. And when we come to them with the gospel, the anger that rears up is an anger based on the fact that we are pulling the curtain back from what they really know to be true. That God is there and they will answer to God for their sins. So all these kinds of unrighteousness and unrighteous behavior destroy the right relationships God would normally use to meet our needs in this life. Do born-again Christians who behave like the ungodly and the unrighteous lose their salvation? No. Salvation is based entirely on Christ's righteousness, not our own. We are no longer under the law for righteousness' sake. When we disobey God as believers, as Christians, our Heavenly Father disciplines us without condemning us. In order that, and that may involve losing temporal benefits that would have been ours. Born again believers are no longer under the law. And so our righteousness is no longer based on our obedience. It is Christ in us that is our salvation. So all things are lawful for me, Paul writes. That's a, probably a slogan that has been used, cast around in the church in Corinth. But Paul qualifies it by saying, but all things are not helpful. Helpful in what? Helpful in seeking righteousness. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any, thinking of alcoholism and drunkardness and other types of addiction. I won't be brought into slavery to any of these sins. And so Paul is not putting this obedience into a place of saying, if you do this, you'll lose your salvation. He's saying, if you do this, you will miss out on the benefits of your salvation in this life. Now let's be practical. If one of you here today gave in to temptation, you're having financial struggles, you know, you just, you know, you can't make ends meet, your reputation's gonna take a beating, you're likely to lose your job, and so you decide to embezzle. You decide to take company money. You, you lie to yourself and say, I'm just borrowing it and I'll put it back as soon as I can. And then you get caught and it comes to light and you are disgraced. You lose your position. You'll never get work in that line again. Your family members look at you differently now. You may lose your marriage. Do you see what's going on? You give in to this type of sin and temptation and you can lose it all in just a very short period of time. You can be the pastor of a church respected throughout the community. Someone others admire and imitate. And in one stupid act, you can throw it all away 
and lose it all. This is part of what Paul is warning the Corinthians about. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Romans 10 verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now Paul is not saying that the law is the end of all use of the law but it's the end of the law for righteousness sake. I do not stand before God with any righteousness of my own in the courtroom scene where justification is administered. Our liberty under the Lordship of Christ puts an end to the law for righteousness sake, but not for kingdom benefits sake. You commit adultery, you will suffer the consequences. You commit extortion, you will suffer the consequences. You commit any of these sins, you will suffer the consequences in this life. You will not lose your salvation, but you will lose many of the provisional benefits of the kingdom of God in this life. We are now free to love and serve one another as neighbors. And as we continue to do that, we find that God's kingdom provision flows very, very freely and generously. So this is how and this is why love is the fulfillment of the entire law of God. We read that in Romans chapter 13 in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Can you see this? Is this making sense to you? It's important because the Christian life so easily we can go off into these ditches on either side of the road. Lawlessness on the one hand, legalism on the other hand, and the reality is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the King of Kings, and we are living in the kingdom of God. All kinds of unrighteousness and ungodliness, whether it be the life of the unbeliever or in the life of the believer, burns like acid through the right relationships through which God's kingdom provides. If we persist in disobeying God, we may lose everything in this life. But what if God does not discipline us when we sin? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse five reads, and have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. That's, that's God's discipline. That's a, a spanking from God. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. 
For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? I want you children to listen up right now. If your mom and dad love you, they won't let you get away with doing things that are wrong. And that's how you know that they love you. Have you noticed that your neighbor's dad doesn't come over and spank you when you disobey? Have you noticed that? That's because you're not his kid. But you are being disciplined, hopefully, by the one who is your father. And Paul is telling us, or the, uh, the writer of Hebrews, I think it is Paul. But anyway, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying here that if you are a child of God, your heavenly father will discipline you when you disobey him. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Wow. If you are able to persist in sin without experiencing the chastening of your Heavenly Father, it may be because He is patiently giving you time to repent. But that won't last forever. Or it may be because you are not yet His child. There's nothing to keep you from becoming His child. If you repent and turn to Christ in faith and allow what he has done for you on the cross to apply to your sins, you can become a child of God. And then you will receive the discipline of God if you continue to live in sin. But what happens when God does discipline us? What's the result of that? Again, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we much, not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. Now I want to just insert here that sometimes we have human fathers who are very, very unrighteous to the point of being abusive, cruel. And that sin is not condoned by God under this idea that parents must discipline their children. We are never authorized by God to do harm, only to do good. And if you have grown up in a situation in which that one that was intended to do you good did you harm, then they will answer for their sins. Either Christ will pay for them if they repent, or they will pay for them when they die and go to hell. But I want you to know that God is not condoning parental abuse. Paul continues, or the writer of Hebrews continues, Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. That's a divinely inspired understatement. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That is a righteousness with contentment, not a grudging righteousness, but a righteousness that is rooted in joy and contentment, knowing that our Heavenly Father is helping us become more and more like Him like our older brother Jesus, to those who have been trained by it. 
So God is good. God is wise. God is a loving Father whose chastening accomplishes His purpose in the lives of His children. And so when you are chastened by the Lord, rejoice that you have clear evidence that you really are in His eternal family. Can unrighteous believers be converted? Yes. <laughs> Here we are. We all started in that situation. And such were some of you, Paul writes in chapter 6 and verse 11. Paul is speaking to a congregation full of former pagans. Okay? These folks have been there and done that. These people have been converted from those unrighteous lives, and they are now saved. But Paul still has to remind them that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous things that they are doing, like taking one another to court before unbelievers, are incompatible with seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so if believers backslide into their old ways and start living again like the unbelievers they used to be, though they will not lose their salvation if they are truly saved, they will miss out on many of the temporal benefits of living in God's kingdom. Just as the unrighteous that Paul has listed here who have not been saved. So membership in God's kingdom has benefits. Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, there's those comedians again, which are not fitting but rather giving thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Why would Paul issue such a stern warning if believers cannot disobey this? It is possible for us in circumstances of temptation to yield to our flesh in such a way as to break and destroy the relationships that God has placed us in, in the church, in our family, in our community, in our business and career interests, even before the civil magistrates. We can throw it all away if we act like an unbeliever in those moments. So how are the unrighteous converted? We close with this. And such were some of you. But you were washed. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us 
through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. But you were sanctified. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But you were justified. Romans 8:33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. All of this is accomplished in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness in our lives. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see the reality of your kingdom all around us. And may we invest heavily in these relationships. May we invest generously in the lives of one another. And may we look forward to your natural and supernatural provision in our lives as we walk with you. And we look forward to that day when we will be with you for all eternity in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.